Hats Off Show begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Welcome to the third edition of the Hats Off Show. Uh, my name is Jared Einson, alongside Adam Green. That was beautiful. We just that was beautifully synced right there. We're, we we make magic. We're so we're so in sync. Thank you for joining us for the third episode. Now, uh, hope everybody had a really good Thanksgiving. I did not because the Cowboys lost, but then they won. So I think I'm I think I'm in a good spot, Ag. Yeah, take it week by week. You're happy. You're sad. You're happy. You're sad. You're like the girls in my past three relationships. <laughs> <laughs> very very true. Um, I don't know. What have you been up to? Well, you know, it's getting cold here in New York. Been staying inside. Actually, watching a lot of movies in the theaters. Wait, you just said staying inside, but then watching. Have you been? Are you cheating the system right now? Have you been watching a lot of movies inside your apartment in NYC, or have you been actually going to the theater? I actually have been going to the theater. Okay, I meant inside. I haven't been going to any drive-through movie theaters. Okay, what movies have you seen? Oh, I've seen a few. I saw uh, Hunger Games. You know, are you sure? Because you hesitated. Uh, I am sure. I did see Hunger Games. I'm okay. positive of that. With our uh, first guest, Josh Hutcherson. Of course. He was a lot nicer to us than he was uh, in <laughs> that Jennifer movie. Lawrence. Yes, so I appreciate we got the good Josh Hutcherson. <laughs> is Gone Girl even relevant? Like, it's so long ago. No, Gone Girl is definitely relevant. Have you seen Birdman? I have not. You have not seen Birdman. Okay, I have seen Birdman now three times in the theaters. Three times in the theaters. Three times. Is Michael Keaton your Leonardo DiCaprio? Adam, I'm trying to tell you how good this movie is. It is spectacular. Michael Keaton is making such a huge comeback with this movie. It's it's ridiculous. I saw two nights ago, actually, here, uh, while you were in Miami, here in the city, I saw uh, the movie Wild with Reese Witherspoon. How was that? I thought it was absolutely awesome because it's, you know, it's directed by the same guy that did Dallas Buyers Club. And what he does is he doesn't light his sets. He uses all natural lighting. Yeah. So nothing, no, none of it is manufactured. It's absolutely crazy. I saw Interstellar, and uh, oh, you know what else I saw? What did you see? I saw Whiplash. I did know you saw that. You know how I know? Because we saw it together. Oh, you do remember. But it was a little while ago now. I mean, it was almost, what, what, how long ago was it? Like two weeks ago? Yeah, a few weeks ago. Or three weeks ago or something? But Whiplash, which I think J.K. Simmons is going to get nominated for an Oscar for. Whiplash, let me tell you guys, is an exceptional movie. You should go out and see it. And I will also tell you why you should go out and see it. Because it is produced. Yes, I said produced. Not directed. But produced by our guest today, Mr. Jason Reitman. So it shows you, Adam, how talented he is. He can direct, you know, Oscar-nominated films and also uh, also produce them. I know I'm jumping the gun, but I think that this one, uh, I think this one is going to be very uh, critically acclaimed and get a lot of buzz come uh, Oscar season. I thought it was a great movie. Uh, Miles Teller, don't overlook him. I think he's kind of starting to come into his own. Yeah, so I guess this is no better time than to bring on our guest, AG. Are you pumped? I'm really pumped, Jared. I don't I know if wait. you're really that pumped. That was that. I think that was like a fake. I'm pumped. <sighs> I'm extremely pumped. All right, wait. I promised after Michael B. Jordan episode I wouldn't yell into the into the microphone. Who did you I promise that to? Myself. Well, you shouldn't promise that to yourself. Tell yourself that you're taking that back because you should yell every single time because that was the best line ever. Thank you. All right. I will yell profusely throughout this podcast. Thank you. Deal, deal, deal. I love it. Okay. Our guest for this episode, uh, he has directed movies like... Up in the Air, Thank You for Smoking, Juno, and Produced, like we just talked about. Uh, it's out in theaters now. Whiplash, please welcome the very, very uh, talented director, Jason Reitman. Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Just okay? I'm doing okay, you know. Uh, I'm 
interested to see how this uh, this podcast goes. Well, I need I want you to be doing better than okay when you're our our guest here on the Hats Off show. So, what can me and Adam do just right off the bat to to get you better than okay? Wow, <laughs> there's a Karen. song that I love that I haven't heard sung in two part harmony in a long time. Oh boy, <laughs> Jared, you can't make blanket offers like that off the bat. It's, you don't know where that was a blank with. check if I ever heard one. It it, it 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 was, but Adam, I want to make sure that my uh, that my guests, that our guests, feel uh, feel very good coming here on the Hats Off show. I am nothing but enthusiastic, if only slightly intimidated. <laughs> Fair enough. That we'll take that as an answer. All right. All right, Jason. So Jared and I last night were watching Sports Center, and we we're noticing how bad the Charlotte Bobcats are this year. Five and fifteen, mm-hmm. another abysmal year for them. Almost as bad as the Lakers. Unbelievable. Exactly. The Lakers just as bad, if not worse. And we were just thinking about how hard it must be for Michael Jordan as an owner to watch this team and for them to be bad year in and year out. And while as a player, he was obviously incredible and so competitive. And we were just thinking about the differences between him as a player and an owner. And think about the parallels between that and a producer and a director. Obviously, like a player, a director is much more involved in the day-to-day and has arguably a bigger influence, um, while the owner and producer are a little bit uh, similar roles, but obviously much different than a director and a player. And we wanted to hear your thoughts on how different the feelings are between directing a successful movie, like Juno or Up in the Air, and versus producing a successful uh, movie, such as Whiplash. I mean, I think to make the the metaphor a little cleaner, you'd have to say it's kind of the difference between being a coach and a GM. Mm. You know, I look at like kind of what, you know, Phil Jackson did as a coach and then uh, that transition to kind of whatever you exactly want to call his job with the Knicks. Um, And that must be frustrating sometimes for him because he must want to just get on the court and, you know, drop some plays. But as a director... I don't know. I, I do feel a little bit more on the ground. As, as, honestly, I don't think I get as honest experience as a producer because I am also a director. So if I were to come and start talking to the director about my thoughts on something, it wouldn't just be a producer offering their advice. It'd be a producer who happens to be a director. And I never want to see him as a guy who's trying to kind of direct over a director's shoulder. So right. I give my directors a very wide berth. Like on Whiplash, for example, I was barely there. I mean, I think it's kind of generous that I have a credit on that film. Let me ask you this then, Jason, or, or try to put it in this perspective, is Michael Jordan ha- has been there before. He's, he's, he's felt the most success that you can ever feel being a part of, of something which is the NBA. And now he's, he's trying it all over again as the owner. As the owner, if he were to go and win a championship or, or just some kind of success, uh, we'll call it a championship, do you think that he will, he will feel as satisfied as he ever did when he led the Bulls to a championship? And it's kind of like the same thing with you. Like, if, if Whiplash went on, or any movie that you ever produced went on to win an Oscar, is it ever going to fully satisfy you as much as if you win an Oscar as a director or, like, when Up in the Air was up for everything? I mean, you bring up so many philosophical questions. I mean, let's break it down one by one. One, you are talking about a universe in which the Bobcats win the NBA Finals. Which <laughs> is so mythical. I mean, we might as well be talking about kind of, you know, Wonka Vision or something. I, it's just, <laughs> but that's a nice fairy tale that, uh, to think about. You know, uh, my understanding of Michael Jordan is that he is so competitive that every bet means the world to him. So everything he's playing is a game of some kind, and he just needs to win everything. Michael Jordan goes shopping, and he wants to pick the right, you know, the, the right checkout line. 
that is a game and he wants to win it. So right. uh, my guess is winning means a big deal. I mean, I saw that piece on him, the uh, Michael Jordan at 50 piece, and that was really interesting to see how he's aging, how he's growing up, what his life is like now, uh, that the playing is 100% behind him. And it seems to be changing him a little bit, but he still, he just thrives on winning. Now, the real question is, in this metaphor, is what is winning as a filmmaker? Yeah, that is And that winning is an Oscar question. is not necessarily winning as a filmmaker. Making a film that somehow represents everything you intended the audience to feel, that may be winning as a filmmaker. Having a billion dollars in box office, that may be winning as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So the difference between... Uh, a film that I directed winning Best Picture and a film that I produced winning Best Picture, they're both extraordinary feelings. And if that were ever to happen to me, I would be over the moon <laughs> and so proud. And so proud of everyone I made the film with. And it's funny. Uh, I, I think perhaps when I made my first film, I was way more centered on my own personal goals and accomplishments. And with each subsequent film, as I get older... I really think of the films as these collaborations that I do with people that I love, you know, artists that I've known forever. You know, I've known my cinematographer since I was 15 years old. I've known right. my first AD since I was in my early 20s. So this is the family that I make movies with. So if something were to win something, I think what would be exciting about it, director, producer, whatever, um, is that somehow this thing that I made with the people I loved is being honored. If you could travel back in time, so this is a hypothetical, I know you're a film junkie, in shadow, kind of just watch over any director in any movie from the past, who would it be, what director, and what movie would it be? Oh, what a good question, and what a fantastic <laughs> fantasy. Um, there are so many, I mean, it's so hard to nail that down. I mean, you know, I have these kind of... You know, my favorite movie is Shampoo, so my automatic answer at first is just, oh, I'd love to be on the set of Shampoo and watch Hal Ashby work and to see Los Angeles in the 70s at the kind of like the height of the kind of uh, of American cinema. Um, I'd love to watch, oh, be on the set of Carl Knowledge and see Mike Nichols working with Jack Nicholson. But then I want to go further back. I'd love to see Kubrick. I'd love to see Kubrick at so many stages. I'd love to see a Kubrick on The Killing, when he's just figuring out how good a director he's going to be. But oh, then again, yeah. I want to see him on the set of Clockwork Orange. I was just about to say that. <laughs> how does he make that bizarre movie? Um, how does he make it so haunting in real time? I mean, you know, one of the kind of interesting things about being on sets, and I grew up on sets, is that the feeling of the set does not always translate to the feeling on screen. You can have a very stressful set of a comedy you can have a very light-hearted set of a drama or horror film. You know, you could literally be shooting a scene where a character is being murdered in a horror film, and the attitude on set is very kind of light-hearted and fun. Um, and then I've seen the opposite. I've seen light-hearted movies where the set is brutal. So I'd be fascinated to see, I'd be fascinated to look into the, the movies I love most and see what was the approach. I mean, what... How was Al Pacino as he's doing the kind of the finale of Scarface? Was it actually kind of like easy going or did it feel as kind of like coke fueled and manic? <laughs> Jason, I actually I, I thought this question was was uh, was a really good one by Adam. And so I, I wanted to answer it myself. I, I, I picked uh, Dances with Wolves. Why? <laughs> I, this is this is this, no. This is exactly why I want to explain the it. Horses I, and shit. I mean, <laughs> he it, the longest one of the longest films ever. You're yeah. supposed to be on set he, that like, long. Outside in the 
desert and really no more more my thinking was is i wanted to see an actor that i i looked up to that that took that leap and that directed himself in a movie and to see the like uh, the contrasts of that and i thought that it was uh, i thought that it would be really interesting to go back and see kevin costner behind the camera you know directing directing this movie and then all of a sudden now he's in front of the camera and, and he's acting upon his own direction and don't get me wrong, it's a great film, he's great in it, he did a great job directing it, but that's a gnarly set to be on, <laughs> I mean, just all day watching, you know. Well, maybe being out in New York, the cold is just getting to me, so I was thinking that's, of a cold movie. It is very cold, that's probably it. You know what, though? It's interesting, Jason, because you were saying how comedies might not be that funny on set, uh, even though it translates really well in the theater. When I first thought of this question, I was thinking about First, I thought, you know, I wanted to be some incredible, critically acclaimed film. That's what I'd shadow on. Then I started to think about some of my favorite films, and I thought how amazing it would be to be on a set like Caddyshack, like Roddy Dangerfield's first movie. But actually, apparently Chevy Chase and Bill Murray barely talked and didn't even get along, so it may have been kind of a tense set. So you never. Yeah, I mean, that's what what I'm talking about. Like, what's that chemistry like? Are they fond of each other or not? Uh, I mean, I'd love to be on the set of the apartment. You know, and see Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine, and see what their real life chemistry was like, and and see what it's like uh, to watch Shirley MacLaine just kind of just jump onto the screen and, and watch Jack Lemmon and kind of like the probably the greatest performance of his career. Yeah, and that actually brings up a, an interesting thing. Speaking of chemistry, and, and Jason, I want to, uh, I really want to get your insight on uh, on this one. Is is if if an actor is Let's say, uh, you know, we keep using parallels of sports uh, on on this show, but let's say you have, um, you know, you have an athlete. Like, I want to give an example, Kobe Bryant. Everybody thinks that Kobe Bryant off the court is, is a headache, and he's a little bit of a headache in the locker room. And then when he gets on the court, though, he performs. And he performs, and he's, and he's delivered uh, five championships now for the Lakers. And my question for you, speaking on chemistry, is, is if you have a, a, an actor – and uh, off the court per se, so so off the set, you know that he's a headache, you know that he's a nightmare, but you have already hired him, and then the movie comes out, and it is absolutely wonderful and phenomenal. He just brought it and delivered it. Does a director like you, 10 years down the line, two years down the line, do you work with that guy again, knowing that you made magic on the screen, even though off the screen it was a little bit uh, of a headache? Well, I suppose it depends on how our relationship has changed, you know? I mean, you know, the first time you work with someone, it can be a little tricky, and maybe you're kind of finding your relationship and maybe you don't trust each other quite as much. And then, you know, as the relationship moves forward, you find a, a dialogue and you find a way to work. And certainly you want to work with great people. But if someone's going to be a headache every time, yeah, I think at a certain point, life's too short. You know, again, and that's yeah. I think one of the differences between sports and film is that with sports, at the end, there's one goal is to win. And one team wins and that's it. And if you need the best player and the best player's a headache, you're going to have a headache on your hands. But there isn't only one actor, and there isn't only one win. So my suggestion is you only get to make so many movies. You only live once. Find people that you love telling stories with, and the the work will translate. Yeah, but what if I I told you, Jason, that you, you just got done filming that movie. It came out. It was amazing. He was a headache, and now the next movie, the studio is like, we want you to work with it again because it was it was just absolute magic. Would you take that job and work with him again? Or her. I mean, again, uh, it, it, it's very situational, and, and certainly it's a tricky thing to make a decision when you're being threatened. But I, my gut is no. My gut is. Your gut is no. Wow. I mean, look, how many movies are you going to make? And uh, it, you know, it's a you know, it's a year, two years of your life, 
And it, are you going to spend a year or two years of your life? Because um, you can remember, a director has to fall in love with their actors. You have to just fall in love with them so much that no matter what happens at any given moment, you just want, you just want to make them look good. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of feel it in a movie when you can tell that the director is in love with their actors. You can kind of see the way Scorsese feels about DiCaprio. He's in love with him, like in the best way. He wants to make him look great. I appreciate that reference, by the way. <laughs> and uh, Mo, but that's, that's, it's such a kind it, of it permeates such a clear example. Yeah, you can really feel it. On he just loves him, you know. And you can tell when a director doesn't love their lead actor. <laughs> and and if, if your actor is someone that's impossible to love for you, then you know what's the point. Speaking of talking about how uh, Scorsese feels about DiCaprio, I want to get your opinion on how you feel about some actors. If I told you all actors were publicly traded stocks, mm-hmm. what actors are you putting in your stock portfolio so you could diversify it and have some stable stocks like IBM and Apple, maybe some uh, <laughs> you know primetime actors, and then maybe some high-risk, high-reward, younger actors? Uh, who are maybe three or four people that you're looking at right now who you think are great actors and either really established and still great or really young stars who you think will turn into buy, buy low and sell high here, Jason. Well, well, I, I have one qualification for this. and is, Am I trying to make money on these? Am I just trying to go for box office or am I like, is this talent? Is this just, I just want great actors who are going to be great in the movie who raise the, the level of quality of the film. I definitely, th- I think it's both, right? I mean, you de- like you like like Adam said, like you want you want your couple stocks that are just a sure thing and high hitters. But I would love to hear who you who you really would buy low, and then you think you can sell high on in a couple of years. So you're looking for up and coming. This is not like I, I can't just say Daniel Day Lewis is a brilliant actor. That's just because that's like buying Apple stock. Yeah, no, that, that's right? a, that's a good answer too. I think you'll have Daniel Day Lewis in there. Yeah, mix it up a little bit. All right. I mean, I think about the actors that I, I desperately want to work with um uh so i'll give you some uh some kind of like pop you know you know sensations you know tom cruise matt damon these are two actors who are old school style movie stars where i'm kind of happy to watch those guys do anything and uh and i and i and i I watch them the way people have watched movie stars since the beginning of time you just they just enjoyable to watch no matter what they're doing uh from just kind of Pure, you know, craft work. Charlie Theron, Kate Winslet, Paul Giamatti. Um, these are guys, you know, who are just so skilled and talented that they they make the toughest things look easy. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I was buying some stocks now, <laughs> buying some 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 cheap stock, at so, the, uh, you know, I'm going to go with one actor who was introduced to me by a very good friend. Uh, and her name is Caitlin Deaver, and uh, I think uh, I think she is just I think she has so much potential and so much ahead of her, and uh, I, I just can't remember. Oh God, what was my friend's name? Who told me about Caitlin Deaver? If I just think long enough, I'm sure hey, it'll come to me. I will tell you, Jason, that this friend sounds like an amazing, amazing friend. So I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know it's. The kind of friend with the kind of uh, the thoughtful vocal advice that one would say is the kind that should have a podcast. <laughs> Adam, by the way, do you know who this who this actress is that he just bought low on? Tell us. Tell the audience. Okay. Uh, so she is very, very talented. I noticed her first in uh, a movie called Short Term 12. 
Um, and then uh, I don't know if anybody out there has seen that movie, but if you haven't, you need to go see it. And then I, I called J- Jason was looking for a role to fill on Men, Women, and Children, and I uh, he kind of just described to me the role, and I I said, listen, you got to go see this film. And I think Jason, didn't we go see it like the next day? Yeah, we went we went out to uh, the landmark on Olympic. And we went and saw the film, and literally after, he was like, gotta hand it to you, she is an awesome actress, and then she ended up being in, uh, in, his, uh, in, in his movie. And she's, she's a wonderful actress. I, 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 can't, I think that's the best. I, I wrote down my, a couple of mine, by the way, Jason, and I now am regretting that I didn't write down Caitlin Deaver. Ooh. Yeah, you did I, better than write it down. You did the real thing and suggested. Well, it. yeah, that's true. That's true. I did. I did. Yeah, yeah. but still, I mean, yeah. you lost faith so quickly. <laughs> yeah, I actually, Jason, you know who I wrote down for my for my buy low and sell high for a couple of years? DiCaprio. Is, no, I didn't. No, no, I actually wrote down, and it might be a little bit of bias because she's my friend, but I'm getting a, an awesome, you know, front seat view uh, at her career but is uh, Eve Hewson who, uh, right. who who you met a couple times yeah no, she's um, fantastic she was amazing in Hall of Center's film yeah, yeah, yeah. She was great in Enough Said, and uh, and and she's great opposite Clive Owen on um, on on the Nick. And she would be one of the ones that I could buy low on right now, and in a couple of years, then sell high. And then I also put on there uh, McConaughey because he is just you know killing everything he's doing. And then I also put on there Michael Keaton. I thought that was that was a pretty interesting interesting choice. I think I think I, I'm I'm really anxious to see what is going to happen with his career uh, and what sort of comeback he's going to have now with the whole Birdman uh, thing. Well, it certainly feels like we're going to get more Michael Keaton films, and that's a great thing. It does. It definitely does. You know, Jason, how in, in, in sports, when you win a championship and then the next year they go and they win another championship, oftentimes on that second championship, you think that that team was even stronger than the first time they went. They had the same coach. They had the same players. They had the same chemistry. They've been there before. Their bond is stronger, better than ever. So my question for you is, how come oftentimes in Hollywood are sequels not working when it's the same director, it's the same writer, your stars are back for another one. And to give you an example, and I know it's not it's not for every single one, but I had just seen, uh, I saw a week and a half ago, I saw Dumb and Dumber 2, and I was, I was very, very disappointed. Uh, and this is coming from somebody who, if you ask me what my favorite comedy of, uh, of all time is, is the first Dumb and Dumber. But it was the same directors. It was, they wrote the they wrote the first one. They wrote the second one. The same stars. Uh, can you can you give us any thoughts on on that? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I think a again, a basketball team going back to back is only going to have more chemistry their second time around. But making a great film isn't just about having chemistry and winning. It's about having something to say. And the reason why we love these original films so much is because. They said something that never had been said before, and that's what's thrilling. So to come back and have a sequel where they're basically just rehashing everything, I mean, why are they making the sequel? They made the first film because they had something to say. They made the sequel because with all that money out there, how could you not? I mean, that's, that's the reason why they're there. So how could you expect a good movie that's only being made to make a lot of money? The only cases in which sequels have been as good or better have been when the, the filmmaker has something important to say. I think that's why Aliens is a great film. That's why Terminator 2 is a great film. That's why Godfather 2 is a great film. Because 
the filmmakers behind them had a real reason to go make sequels. Right. So do you, so so do you think then like the Fairley brothers who went and made this one again that it's more of a business decision to uh, at an opportunity to make money rather than it is I mean it is like 23 years later uh, rather than them going, "Oh, you know what? I have a I have something to say and I have another story to tell behind the original story that I I once told." I mean, look, I I, I I don't know why the Fairley Brothers made another Dumb and Dumber movie. The first one was really funny. Um, I'm not sure if it's the greatest comedy ever made, um, but <laughs> coming uh, to America. But it's certainly it's certainly very funny. My gut, as a director, is that they wanted to experience what it was like again to make that film. That there was so much joy they had making that film, watching it release, having it be kind of part of the culture that. They said, uh, we, they probably just thought, we want to relive this. And I get that feeling. I mean, certainly I've looked at kind of the joy I've had making some of my films and gone, God, if there was some way to relive that, I would really cherish those moments on set and cherish those moments uh, as it got released. But you have to wonder how much damage you do when you try to recreate something and fall short, which happens, you know, 99% of the time. You know, and again, I go back to... Why does James Cameron make Terminator 2? Right. He didn't do it as a money grab. He didn't do it because he just thought, oh, we need more Terminator movies. He had a really original take on what the sequel could be, taking Arnold from the bad guy, turning him into the good guy, you know, uh, taking CG, which he really pioneered in the abyss, and taking it to the next level with having like a first kind of full CG character that was interacting with the environment and other actors. Uh, He just, he made so many strides. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's actually interesting that James Cameron made the Alien sequel as well as the Terminator sequel, and in both movies, they're almost completely different movies. Um, you know, you know, Alien was a horror film, this kind of sci-fi space horror, and and the sequel was an action film. And he just decided, I'm making a completely different movie here. And Terminator Judgment Day is a completely different movie from the original. What do you think is the best sequel ever made? I mean, it's hard to argue with The Godfather 2 being the best sequel ever made. I mean, how do you, you know, it won Best Picture. It's absolutely brilliant. You know, all the performances are in it are fantastic. Um, you could you could argue which one's better, the first one or the second one. But I mean, really, how do you how do you pick a better sequel? I mean, do you guys have a better one than Godfather 2? Um, I know you did last summer, too. <laughs> Certainly a far superior film than I know you did last summer. One. <laughs> no, I don't. I was definitely thinking of that. <laughs> uh, like honestly, I mean, I can only think of movies where the sequel was interesting. Like uh, Beverly Hills Cop Two was interesting. There was like a Tony Scott version instead of the Martin Brest version, and that's kind of interesting. You know, uh, Toy Story Three is an interesting sequel. Speaking of movie, you know, as we said, most sequels don't work out. But speaking also of movies that don't often work out or sports movies, you've had a few good ones, but uh, they aren't made that frequently and most of them don't seem to work out. But I've always been curious, as a director who's a sports fan as well, how close, how much of a temptation is there when you're sitting back watching sports or at a Kings game to thinking about making a sports movie in the future? Does that ever cross your mind? Yeah, of course it does. Um, I think the most successful sport movies are the ones that are not about sports, but use sports as a location. So, Can you give me an example? For example, is Bull Durham about baseball? Right. No. I guess Field, Field of Dreams isn't either. But Yeah. And that's a great Field one. of Dreams, you know, is, uh, is, is about coming to terms with the concept of 
life and death and saying goodbye and cherishing the people that are alive. Uh, Bull Durham is about the moment you retire. It's about uh, the knowledge you get over the course of your life. It's about falling in love. It's about your place in the universe. Uh, Space Jam is all about sports, though, Jason. <laughs> Space Jam, uh, which was produced by my father, is all <laughs> about sports, and it is uh, a less superior film than uh, the ones I just mentioned. But the great ones, Breaking Away, I mean, is, is Breaking Away at the end of the day about, you know, bike racing? No, you know, by, you know Breaking Away is about... Um, being a part of community and class struggle and fathers and sons um, and, and, and how friendships change as we become adults. So, you know, my father once gave me great advice, and he said, look, you always have to know the difference between your story and your location. He called me up once, and he said, hey, you got to come over and watch 24. I was like, the Kiefer Sutherland show? <laughs> yeah, you got to come over and watch it right now. It's amazing. I was like, all right. So I go to my dad's house, and he puts it on. And he's got like a theater in his house. We're watching, and just the two of us in this theater, we're watching 24. And he goes, just watch four episodes, and then we'll talk. <laughs> All right. So we sit there, and we watch four episodes, and then we just keep going and going, because it's amazing. He's absolutely right. And after I said, what is it? what's so good about this show? It's completely addictive. I mean, there's so many shows about terrorism. And he goes, no, 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 no. This is not a show about terrorism. Mm. Terrorism is a location. This is a show about a guy trying to keep his family together. That's, that's super interesting. And he was dead right. And if you think about every great movie, every movie you love, that's the truth of it. You know, is The Godfather about the mafia? No, they don't even use the word mafia in The Godfather. <laughs> you know, The Godfather is about fathers and sons and brotherhood and family. Um, it's about going into business. Um, and you could say the same for all of my movies. You know, they, my movies are not about cigarette lobbying and teenage pregnancy and the recession. Uh, those are locations to discuss kind of bigger ideas. So the, with the sports movies, the ones that we really love at the end of the day are not actually about sports. Do you think that Rudy is, uh, is about football? And do you like, do you, did you like Rudy? I think Rudy is, is a fine film. I, I don't think it compares to the, the ones that I was mentioning before. Um, uh, I guess Rudy is about David and the Goliath and never counting someone out. I mean, ideas that, I, I don't know, I don't find particularly interesting. But Bull Durham. Bull Durham is a movie. I yeah. Mean, so good. You can watch that over and over. It's just, the writing is so tight, uh, and uh, the characters are so strong, and their perspective is just, beautiful um you know what it means just to be 10 years older what it means to be born just a step slower but with the brains and like one of the best you know female characters ever written that sarandon just crushes so jason do you ever do you ever get that itch and slap shot sorry i forgot slap shot oh yeah slap yeah. shot which isn't about hockey you know slap shot is about kind of life in a working class town so when whenever you're at at a sporting event or watching or watching sports, do you ever get that itch to make you know whether or not it's a sports movie or 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 the setting is just around the sports world? Do you ever uh, do you ever think about maybe diving into that? I mean, certainly a little, and I've kind of dabbled here and there. 
part of me has always wanted to make a movie about a referee. I feel like the the great referee oh. movie has still not been made. Yeah, because there's been the comedy's been done. Forget Paris. Yeah. Do you remember that one, Adam? With yeah, Billy Crystal, the, yeah. yeah, Billy Crystal, right? Yeah, yeah, with Billy Crystal. Yeah, so they did. So they did like kind of like a comedy one. But you're you're absolutely right. Um, Didn't they do one where Whoopi Goldberg played a ref too? Am I no, making that up the, in my head? She was the coach. She was the Eddie. coach, Eddie. Eddie, she was yeah. a coach. You're she right. was she was the fan of a of a of a of a downward spiral New York Knicks team that needed some kind of publicity to put fans back in the uh, in the in the stands. That's it. That's it. Jason, that is a a, a great angle and take. Is something about in in the referee world. I total. Mm. I definitely agree with that. I knew a guy who uh, who refed Olympic hockey and like minor league hockey, and it was just interesting to hear his perspective on the whole thing. Um, Jay, so we've come to uh, come to the last segment, or I guess the, the last part, and, and this is a segment that uh, me and Adam are, are trying to catch on here at the Hats Off Show, and it's called Opposites Attract. Ladies and gentlemen, Hats Off Show Promotions is proud to present Opposites Attract, where Adam and Jared will debate a topic, and the guests will choose a winner. Winner, winner, chicken dinner! And a loser. The who? The her? Arguing out of the red microphone from Dallas, Texas, he has seen Celine Dion three times live in Las Vegas, Jared Einson. And his opponent across the studio, arguing out of the blue microphone, also from Dallas, Texas. He once shared an elevator ride with Kevin Costner. They did not make eye contact nor speak to each other. Adam Green. Our Opposites Attract uh, section begins with, actually, I don't know if uh, our audience knows this, but um, our guest is also an actor. He has played uh, Granger Grandson in the movie Twins and the role of Kissing Boy. In kindergarten, yeah. in kindergarten cop. Bear with me, Jason. Bear I with think me. the line's getting weak. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, me and Adam are huge Arnold Schwarzenegger fans. Uh, we grew up watching him, and me and Adam also grew up together. And we uh, we have argued which one is the better movie, Kindergarten Cop or the movie Twins. And you appeared in both of those movies, so we would like to give you our uh, our argument. I have chosen Jason. I think that uh, that Twins is is the better movie. I would like to point out a couple of things. Danny DeVito was in that movie. I think Danny DeVito is awesome. Kelly, an up and coming. I like that awesome as your argument. <laughs> an up and no. no I like to Kelly. point out that it has something that is awesome, and awesome is clearly good. That's awesome is a point in its favor. That's very true. But what I'm trying to say is that the cast is better than uh, the Kindergarten Cop cast. Uh, Danny DeVito is in it. Kelly Preston is in it. A young David Caruso is in it. And I don't even know if either of you two know this, but uh, Heather Graham made a little bit of a part in that movie. I'm sure Jason, you know that. But Heather Graham was in that movie. It was also, guys, it was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Song. And um, I think the most impressive thing of it all is, uh, and I know that often numbers uh, don't you know, portray uh, how good the movie was, but that movie was shot on a $15 million budget and made over $200 million, which I think is damn impressive. And that is my argument, Jason Reitman, for the movie Twins being better than Kindergarten Cop. That's that's interesting. I don't know any of the numbers for Kindergarten Cop. I didn't do that much research. I didn't need to. <laughs> okay, Arnold Schwarzenegger as an undercover kindergarten teacher. Arnold Schwarzenegger with 20 kids. I mean, it just doesn't get much better than that. You put that guy out of his element with little kids, uh, hilarity ensues. Not to mention, Jason's first kiss in real life actually happened 
during that the filming Wait, of that what? movie. Wait, what? That's not true. Jason, that's can you... That's 100% true. What? <laughs> so you did Although your I'm research. I'm not sure if that's a point in its favor. That's a... I mean... Uh, oh, yes. So it's swaying back to my, my... I actually don't recall the kiss. I don't know how it was, but I'm sure it was a... Jason, your first experience. kiss came on the set of uh, Kindergarten Cop? My dad directed my first kiss. <laughs> that is... I, I had no idea about that. That's a yeah. great fact. And lastly, <laughs> most importantly... The famous line from that kid who said, boys have penises and girls have vaginas, like, that's one of the most quotable lines of my childhood, <laughs> anyone's childhood who saw that movie. So even when the movie ended, the lines continued. Well, uh, it's not a tumor, also. It's from kindergarten. It's college. not that's a also, tumor, it's not, yeah. It's not I, a mean, t- I do remember. It's very true. Dirk Davitsky actually does a great Arnold Schwarzenegger, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure, I believe. <laughs> he, he does. Well, they come from neighboring countries. Very true, very true. All right, well, Jason, that's the best we've got. I'm sorry. I'm sorry we couldn't come come at you with, with better arguments, but that's the best argument I have and the best it argument. It doesn't exactly sound like a heated debate. I mean, I hope that you guys, you know, haven't gone hours on this one. We we have not gone hours. Minutes. We've gone minutes, though. <laughs> We've at least gone minutes. No, but we, you know, we grew up in the in the Arnold era, uh, Jason, and 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 it, we often were always like, I wonder what the best, uh, you know, Arnold comedy was. And I definitely said Twins, and he definitely said Kindergarten Cop. So we thought, who better to ask than the guy who appeared in both of the movies? Well, I will first say that Junior is worth another looking because it's better than you remember. Okay. And and I, I kind of had already decided my my side on this before either you started speaking. And I... I Uh-oh. So we didn't I, influence you at all. We didn't influence you at all. We didn't do our jobs. No. Well, I'm a hard guy to influence in general. But I I think Twins is the superior film. Um, yes! And oh! Yes! I, I think Kinder and Cop is very charming and very funny. But at the end of the day, I think... Uh, Twins kind of deals with some kind of bigger ideas. And uh, as far as sequel arguments, I think there's a reason why they keep on trying to make a twin sequel and they're not trying to make a kindergarten cop sequel. By the way, Jason, I can't tell you this might be my favorite podcast show ever because I was down two to nothing in the Opposites Attracts section to Adam Green, and you have just given me my first win. Yeah, I, uh, well, what's clear about both of you is that... Uh, <laughs> The only objective is to win. <laughs> that's, that's, that's very true. Jason, before we wrap it up and let you get back to, to working, because you, you have joined us from your office and have been very kind to be here on the Hats Off show, are you allowed to, and you can obviously say no, are you allowed to, will you tell the Gone Girl story for the listeners? The Gone Girl story? Remember, we were at the improv and I said I, I wanted to say it out there. The Gone Girl story about the lead actress from Gone Girl. And when you were in London and the premiere, and can I set it up with our listeners of, if you haven't been tuning in, listen now, put down everything you're doing. This is an awesome story brought to you by Jason Reitman. Yeah, but I'm also about to spoil Gone Girl, so... Turn off the podcast. If you <laughs> yeah, haven't if seen, you haven't seen Gone, Gone Girl yet, it's I mean, really funny because Bill Burr just... Uh, ruined Gone Girl on his podcast, but he didn't care. He said, I don't give a fuck, and he just ruined it. <laughs> but, yeah. um, By the way, so we don't care either. It's been out for a month and a half. If you haven't gone and supported now, it's fine. Wow. All right, I, 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 I care. I, I uh, care about our listeners. And <laughs> that's why I, I like this warning. If you haven't seen Gone Girl, go see it. And then after you see the movie, hit play and listen to the end of this podcast. <laughs> okay, sure. Sure, fair uh, enough. So, so I go see... I'm in London for London Film Festival where Men, Women, and Children is showing. And uh, I go in the middle of the day to go see Gone Girl. I had, you know, some time off. I caught a matinee. It's great uh, little theater. And 
And it's a really, really spooky movie. I mean, it just stays the. I mean, it's brilliantly done. The, the 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 writing is just off the charts, and the performances are off the charts. And the main character's name is oh god, what's her name? Um, well, Stacy. Uh, what's her name? Oh, what is her name in the in the in the movie? Because they make a book about her. Yeah, it's uh, oh, this is horrible. And I know someone's listening, going, "You idiot!" It's that name. But anyhow, Amy, Dude. Amy, amazing Amy. <laughs> so, so the main character, uh, you know, uh, is this uh, amazing Amy, played by Rosamund Pike, and she does it beautifully. It's spooky, 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 and I watch the film. It just stays with me all day. And that night, I go to a screening of Men and Women and Children. And I do a Q&A, and I come out of the audience, and I see a woman who's like, it, it's amazing Amy across the room staring at me, and she smiles, and she <laughs> waves at me, and I get totally spooked out. I mean, and I, I you know, I, I don't hide my emotions well. I mean, I just, I'm spooked out. I do not respond. I turn away. And I just thought, Jesus, well done, Fincher. This movie is staying with me. And, of course, the next day I get an email from Rosamund Pegg's agent saying, she tried to wave you down at a screening last night and said that you didn't want to talk to her. That's amazing. That, I mean, that's... I mean, wow. I mean, how could you ever, like, you know, how could you even prepare for that? You just got out of that movie, and you're like, is my mind playing tricks with me or not? I mean, there's no way that you ever in a million years thought that that was really Rosamund Pike, though, right, Jason? No. Yeah, like ever, 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 ever. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Guys, I, uh, I feel in very good company. I'm on the third podcast. I, uh, I don't think I've ever kind of come in that early into a show's history, and I, I wish you hundreds of great podcasts. I'll certainly be listening. Well, Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate everything, and, uh, and uh, have a good day. All right, guys. Yeah. I enjoyed right. having you on. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. For continuous updates and new episodes, listen to thehatsoffshow.com. The Hats Off Show with Jared Einson and Adam Green live in New York City. New York City.